Well, hello to my friends in Mafra. Uh, God bless you. I, I trust, um, I hope you're keeping well during this uh, interesting and somewhat difficult time. Uh, it will be good when we can all meet together again, and I'm looking forward to being with you when that's, that's possible. But until then, we'll just keep doing it this way uh, and trusting that God will use it. So let's uh, pray, and then we'll consider God's word together. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the technology that makes it possible for us to share your word, uh, even at times of uh, disruption. Uh, we thank you that you've trusted us with your word. Uh, we confess again that we need your help uh, to understand it. So we pray that in the same way that you inspired your servant Isaiah to write these words uh, through your Holy Spirit, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come to us now and help us to understand these words for us today. Uh, so um, encourage us and inspire us. Uh, correct us, uh, teach us the things that we need to know so that we might uh, love you more dearly and uh, be more dedicated disciples of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are living in interesting times, uh, particularly interesting times. Uh, I wonder perhaps if uh, historians will look back at uh, this year as being a real turning point of some description. It's impossible to say, but uh, we are living in, in very interesting, perhaps even strange times. And at a time like this, it would be possible to look at the news, read the internet, um, check your Facebook feed very, very frequently, and you might even give in to doubt or dismay. Uh, please don't. That's not the, the right response. Uh, the book of Isaiah, just like all the other 65 books of the Bible, is saturated with the idea that God is in control, uh, God is sovereign, and uh, that history is moving to a destination that that God has ordained. Uh, and Isaiah picks that up. Now, we've been thinking about Isaiah these last few times that I've spoken to you, and uh, God willing, we'll continue for a little while yet. Uh, but Isaiah is a wonderful book. Its 66 chapters uh, span human history from creation until the very end of all things. Creation to new creation, it spans. Uh, it's a wonderful book which speaks to some of the deepest uh, needs that humans have. And it's a book that reveals quite remarkably the holiness of God and his desire to save a people for himself. But it does so in the context of some very, very big questions. And these questions do point to the heart of the human condition. So we began, uh, we're up to chapter 5 today, but as we begin, began our look at, at Isaiah some time ago, we realised that Isaiah is answering a big question. Uh, Isaiah oscillates between threat and promise, between the uh, very real prospect of judgment and the promise of salvation. And so backwards and forwards the book goes. But essentially, the book of Isaiah answers this big question. How will this Zion, the Zion that we see in chapter 1, Zion being code for Jerusalem, Zion being the mountain on which Jerusalem was built, how will the Zion that's represented in chapter 1, the Zion that is a rebellious child rebelling against its father, how will that Zion become the Zion of chapter 2, which is pictured as a happy family? How will that transformation take place? And the whole of the book of Isaiah uh, spells that out. But as Isaiah begins, he takes these first five chapters to give us a, a prologue. It, it is the prelude to the whole of his big book. And he condenses all of its major themes into these first five chapters. So as we, uh, as we look at our sermon today, we'll be finding that... Uh, that were at the end of that first section. Now, the threat that Zion or Jerusalem or Judah was facing was very real. 
it was a real threat and it was one that we could wonder, would, would it be heeded? As we read these words, would they take uh, God's word seriously? Would they heed the threat? Now, we've seen over the course of history many threats that have been unheeded. You look back and you wonder, how is it that people can get things so badly wrong? The evidence was there, but it just wasn't taken seriously. Now, if you know anything about European history of, uh, of the 20th century, you'll realise that there's an outstanding example of a threat that went, un went unheeded back in those days. So in 1938, uh, Europe was watching while Germany rearmed. After the First World War, 1914 to 1918, Germany had been disarmed. Uh, the threat of the German uh, army was such that uh, the peace talks said you must never have an army like that again. Well, in defiance of the treaty that was signed at the end of the First World War, Germany under Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party started to rearm and there were people who were starting to get very worried about these things. So a conference was convened in September of 1938 that was attended by the leaders of a number of nations, including Great Britain. And, and so Neville Chamberlain, the, uh, the British Prime Minister, went across and he participated in what's become known as the, the Munich Conference. And they signed an agreement on September the 30th of 1938. Now, Ch Chamberlain came home, he flew back from the conference and was met by a large crowd of reporters and he waved a piece of paper and the piece of paper uh, said, well, he, he made this very famous speech. He said, this morning I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler, and here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. We regard the agreement signed last night as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. Now, this is 20 years after the end of the First World War. It was a living memory for many, many people. And they, didn't not, they did not want to go through a war as severe and as savage, as damaging as that again. And so uh, Neville Chamberlain went there, came back with this signed agreement that it wouldn't happen. He said that night, uh, a crowd gathered outside the official Prime Minister's residence, 10 Downing Street, and words that have become very famous. Chamberlain leant out the window and said, my good friends, this is the second time in our history that there has come from Germany to Downing Street, peace with honour. Loud cheers. Chamberlain went on, I believe it is peace for our time. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. The crowd responded, we thank you, God bless you. And Chamberlain replied, and now I recommend you go home and sleep quietly in your beds. You see, Hitler had promised that if those at the conference allowed him just to take a little portion of Czechoslovakia where there were three million German speakers, uh, he said, if you give me that, I'll want no more of Europe. And so Chamberlain said, we will have peace in our time. We've signed an agreement. Well, not everyone was convinced. And Winston Churchill was one of the very few who saw the danger that Hitler's Germany posed to not just Europe, but to the world. And so Winston Churchill, hearing of the agreement, addressed the House of Parliament and said to Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister, you were given the choice between war and dishonour. You chose dishonour and you will have war. So Churchill saw the nature of the threat and he was one of the very few who foresaw what was going to take place next. And of course, war took place next because Hitler wasn't satisfied with merely annexing Czechoslovakia, he wanted more. The threat was underestimated and Europe paid a terrible price. Now Isaiah's prophesying to Judah in times of real threat. Judah was a remnant of what had once been Israel. Uh, Isaiah's prophecy covered a time when Israel still existed, the northern states, but it wouldn't be existing for much longer. 
Uh, the si- the si- actually, I'm going to get you to t- cut that out because it had actually had gone. No. Yeah. Right. So Isaiah was prophesying at a, at a time of very real threat to Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, Judah was uh, the remnant of the people of Israel because by then the northern tribes had been defeated by the uh, Assyrian people and had been taken into exile. And Isaiah was saying, what happened to them will happen to you too if you don't straighten up and fly right. Israel was, or Judah was surrounded by hostile neighbours. There was Assyria, there was Babylonia. And over the course of time that Isaiah prophesied, the Assyrian Empire gave way to the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians, like the Assyrians, were terrifying conquerors. They were not good people to fall on the wrong side of. And so in Isaiah's book, we've seen this oscillation of threat to promise. Chapter 1 was mainly threat. Chapter 2, a very brief little chapter, promise. Promise of better things if God's people repent. Chapter 2, verse 6 to chapter 4, verse 1, which I spoke on last time, back to the theme of threat, a long section. Chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, more promise. But our reading today is back to the theme of threat. Notice where the longest sections are concentrated. It's on the threat. The prospect of God having to judge his people loomed very large. It was very real. The promises are great, they're wonderful, but they're dealt with briefly because the more likely outcome, as Isaiah saw it, was that God's people would not listen and that they would come under his judgment. I had a friend um, whose father was very ill. When he died, my friend had to clean out his house and she found a letter in his desk which had remained unopened. She opened it and discovered in there an appointment that he never attended. It was an appointment with his doctor for the the purpose of the doctor announcing that he had cancer. He suspected something was wrong and he didn't want to do anything about it, so he didn't. God's people then and now need to hear God's word of judgment and threat very seriously. The things we would prefer to believe won't change the reality. We might go through bouts of wishful thinking, hoping for the best. We might try to sweep things under the carpet and pretend things aren't that bad. But we need to hear God's voice. We need to hear the sternness that he has against any opposition that seeks to dethrone him. God is kind and gracious and merciful. He longs to be merciful, but he's a king who will not be thwarted. He will have his way. It's a good way, but we'd best not oppose it. Now, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah chapter five uh, a harvest of stinking fruit, more judgment, more threat. But read it with me, please. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? 
And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honoured men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled and each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw in sinners with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them and the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations afar off and whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. 
Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions they roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold darkness and distress and the light is darkened by its clouds. So ends the first section of Isaiah's prophecy. It's pretty gloomy stuff. Will Judah heed the warning? Will we listen to the warning too? Now those first seven verses are a parable. They're a story, but it's a story in song. Look at it there in verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. It's a parable about a vineyard. It's a love song about a vineyard. It's about someone else's vineyard, as we'll see. So the owner of the vineyard dug it up and cleared it of stones. He made terraces. He made sure that the vines were well planted. He planted it with the choicest of vines. No expense was spared. This was a good vineyard. He built a watchtower in it so that he could keep out he could set a guard to keep an eye out for marauders, for people who might want to steal the produce. He hewed a wi- out a wine vat in it so that the, uh, the grapes could be stamped out and wine made at the right time. And he looked for it to yield grapes. Well, pretty obviously, that's why you plant a vineyard, isn't it? You want it to produce grapes. You want it to produce grapes that will give good fruit, that make good wine. But it yielded wild, wild grapes. Now, Alec Matia, in his wonderful commentary on these verses, um, Alec Matia says that that word wild grapes could be just as well translated stink fruit. This is fruit that's rotted on the vine. It smells foul and it's useless, good for nothing. And so we move on and the audience that's hearing these words is asked for a verdict. Verse 3, Now inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. The speaker's changed. This is not talking about someone else's vineyard now. The vineyard owner is asking for a verdict for those who are listening. The question is, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Why did it yield stink fruit? Now, the answer to that question, what more, is nothing. You couldn't have done anything more. That's all vineyard keepers ever do. They dig it up, they plant it, they look after it. Nothing more could have been done to provide for that vineyard every chance of producing a good crop. The vineyard owner speaks now. Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, the hedge of protection. That was a fence to keep animals out, keep people that shouldn't have been there out. And it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. Ezekiel is another of the prophetic writers who uses the imagery of a vineyard. It's quite a commonplace uh, in the Old Testament, in the, uh, in the prophetic writings and in the Psalms. And Ezekiel asks this question, is wood ever taken from a vine to make anything useful? Do they make pegs from it to hang things on? The answer is no, they don't. You see, the wood of a grapevine is useless. Its only use is to produce grapes. If it doesn't do that, burn it bulldoze it, get rid of it, because you can't do anything else with it. So the situation as described in Isaiah 5 verse 5 is really very serious. This is a vineyard that's not producing good fruit, it's producing rotten fruit. The owner has no choice but to get rid of it. 
And so the owner of the vineyard in verse 6 says, I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. Briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard is going to come under the judgment of Eden. Remember it was infested with thorns and thistles? No rain. The vineyard's not going to be a good one for much longer. In fact, it hasn't been good at all. Well, we, now we get to the punchline. We get to the conclusion. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. So the parable has a purpose. The vineyard that's producing stinking fruit are the people that Isaiah is writing to. It's Israel, it's Judah. Yahweh looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. Yahweh is the vineyard's owner. And he's angry because he found no good fruit when he should have found it. And so faithlessness, which is what's being described here, is uselessness. And uselessness means that the nation is fit for nothing else but destruction. These things came to the nation of Israel by way of warning many, many, many years before when Moses preached his final sermons that were recorded in the book of Deuteronomy, he made it very plain that if Israel obeyed God's commands, if they walked in his way, if they lived by his word, if they were faithful, if they were obedient in their love for him and in their service of him, then he would send rain in its season. Yahweh is the sovereign of the earth. He, he, he makes sure that the rain falls exactly when it's needed. But it was a condition of their inheritance of the land that they be obedient. And if they weren't, then even nature would turn against them. Deuteronomy 11 verses 16 to 17 says quite plainly, that if they go away from Yahweh and worship other gods, he'll be angry and their land won't produce because there'll be no rain. Yahweh says, and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. They knew all these things, but they turned their back on them. Years of neglect of God's law had led them to their present situation and the threat that was now hovering over them. Will they listen this time? You see, the thing is that the, pro the prophets went as spokesmen for Yahweh. They went to remind people of things that they should have known already. They're, they're covenant spokesmen. They remind them of the law that was given that they were always to live by if they were to enjoy the privilege of being Yahweh's people. Isaiah's not really saying anything new. He's just there as a reminder. He's saying, this is what you signed on for. Get back to it. Or the threats that were announced in Deuteronomy will come on you. That's what he's calling them to go back to. Go back to Yahweh's way. Don't continue as you are. And so we move to the second section of this reading. And in verse 8 through to verse 25, we find recorded six woes. Now, woe is a word which is often misunderstood. you having a bad day, you hit your thumb with a hammer or the cake doesn't bake or you forget your homework or something like that and you might go, woe is me. Uh, that's making very light of a very serious word. A woe in the Bible is an exclamation of grief, of despair, of hopelessness. It can also be uttered by someone over someone else as a statement of great pity for a terrible situation that they've found themselves in. But six times, now that the situation's been described through this song of the vineyard, six times woe is pronounced on Judah and Jerusalem. Now the first of them in verses 8 to 10 describe unethical property acquisition. 
These are land developers who've been grabbing the land of the poor and extending their own property as a result of it. So verse 8, woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. That's not a good thing. Leviticus 25, 23 to 28 says that the land must not be sold permanently. No family was to be without its possession of the land in Israel. And so when they're buying out the land of poor people, uh, these, these property developers, they're doing so against the express intention of Yahweh, whose land it really is. And so the, the penalty for that is that they're going to forfeit the land and, and, and they'll not only forfeit the land, their houses will stand as ruins and testimony to their failure. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. If you were to Google, look up mansions in Detroit. Uh, there's been a terrible economic downturn in the American city of Detroit and there's street upon street of very, very fine houses just left absolutely derelict without owners. And that was the situation that Isaiah is describing here. Well, the bitter harvest of stink fruit, of rebellion against Yahweh, of forfeiting his way, goes on in this. Um, and we realise that, 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 that this punishment of God's people is going to have an agricultural impact as well. So verse 10 says, A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. Now, they're ancient measurements, and you may not be familiar with, uh, with baths and homers and ephahs and all those sorts of things, so let me help you. Um, whereas Yahweh should have expected a rich harvest from his very well-planted vineyard, he didn't find one. Uh, so he says that the penalty for disobeying him was going to work like this. Now, a bath represents about 22 litres. Vineyards normally produced about 3,800 litres per hectare. So a 10-acre vineyard should have given 38,000 litres of fruit. But it's only going to produce one bath, which is a tiny fraction of what should have been expected. That's what Yahweh says will happen to their vineyards in the future when he withholds the rain due to his displeasure with their living. So the vineyards aren't going to produce. What about the wheat harvest? Well, a homer represents 160 kilograms of grain. An ephah, a mere 16 kilograms, so fully one-tenth of a homer. Normally, when you plant seed, it multiplies by 10. But the harvest that Yahweh's speaking of here is... Whereas they should have been able to expect 1,600 kilograms of grain, they'll get a mere 16, a tiny fraction of what, it should have, of what they should have been able to produce. Yahweh withholds his pleasure. He withholds his rain. They will suffer at the agricultural level terribly. Again, this is fulfilment of a prophecy they should have known from Deuteronomy 28. You'll sow much seed in the field, but you'll harvest little. You'll plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you'll not drink the wine or gather the grapes. Why didn't they listen to God's word? Well, why don't we? It's ever so easy to let time go by and let the voice of God become silent. The second woe is reckless partying. These are people that get up early. They stay up late just for the sake of getting on the grog. While they're good at drinking, 
Verse 12 says, They have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. They're good at kicking their heels up, but it's at the expense of doing what they ought to be doing. And so verse 13 says, Therefore my people will go into exile for lack of knowledge. That's a, an ancient relief carving found on the, uh, the, temple, uh, the, uh, the bedroom wall of the, uh, the emperor of Assyria. Uh, it's Israelites being taken into exile. It was recorded in the history of the nations around about them that the Israelites fell before them. So there's an interlude now. We've had two woes and there's two therefores. There's more woes to come. So the consequence of, of, develop, of, of growing this stinking fruit is that the party's over. And where once they'd been good at kicking their heels up, get, starting early, finishing late, uh, there's a great reversal. Sheol has enlarged its appetite. It's opened its mouth beyond measure. Sheol is the realm of the dead. And so these party animals, their partying's going to continue where the dead are. And they're going to find, whereas once their appetite hadn't been able to be satisfied at all, they're going to find that their appetite is actually outdone by the appetite of the grave because it's never satisfied. The reversal continues, verses 15 and 16. Man is humbled, we're told, but verse 16, but the Lord of hosts is exalted. His justice will show him to be perfectly fair, perfectly holy. He's a terrifying adversary. It would have been much better for them if they'd given in and gone his way from the outset. Verse 17 says that the result of this agricultural devastation that's coming their way, the lambs will graze us in their pasture. In other words, the vineyards will be overrun with sheep. They won't be eating the grapes, they'll just be eating the grass that's overgrown. Nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. It's as though swagmen, you know, those, the fellows that used to tramp around the back blocks of Australia, they'll be there picking what remains. It certainly won't be fruit that goes to the, into the hands and the bellies of the owners. It'll be left for others. And so we get to our third woe. We've had two woes, we've had two therefores, two consequences. Now we get to woe three. And we find in verses 18 that these people are arrogant in their defiance of God. They, they sin willfully. It's as though they're sinning is dragging along a cart behind it. The cart is named sin and they're tied to it and they're dragging it around the place. And their arrogance is expressed in, in the way that they speak of Yahweh. Let him be quick. It's almost like they're saying, come on, bring it on then, get, over, get it over with. Let the, the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. This is a disdainful way of speaking of God. The God who is rich in mercy, the God that's rescued them from Egypt, the God who's provided lavishly for them in the land that he's taken them to. And they speak of him like this. Well, so many people that we're surrounded by speak disdainfully of God and they don't know who they're dealing with. When we cultivate sin, it's as though we're dragging this cart. And when we get attached to it, we're ripe for judgment. The fourth woe is a perverted morality. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Is that a description of our generation? A complete perversion, a complete overturning of what's right and what's wrong, a celebration of what's wrong, a denigration of what's right? Is that not our, how our world expresses itself? I was in the uh, South Gippsland town of Munion a few years ago and uh, I noticed that there was an upcoming concert at the Munion Hall. 
And the singer who was going to be performing there had on her poster a description from a music magazine that read this way, what an upright, down-home powerhouse of a AAA-rated instrument she has at her disposal. It's the voice of a sinning angel, and in her company we were drawn to a black heaven. Now I wonder if not that many years ago no one would have described an artist in those terms and expected others to approve of it. But now that's taken as a recommendation. It's just virtually saying, who wouldn't want to go and hear about a black heaven? Who wouldn't want to be in the presence of a, a sinning angel? This is a perversion. This is uh, the exchange of good for evil and evil for good and darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet. How much of the media that we take in answers to that description? To what extent are our brains and our attitudes being conditioned by attitudes to rightness and wrongness, which are a perversion of God's word. That's a challenge for us. To what extent are we being conditioned by God's word or the world's word and its misunderstanding of where real goodness is? We move on to woe five, which is foolish wisdom in verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Sound familiar? Those words echo the kind of language that was used in Genesis 3 to describe the temptation of Eve and of Adam in the garden where what they saw seemed delightful but it ended up being their undoing. That's perverted wisdom. The sixth woe, human wisdom leads to injustice in verses 22 to 23. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. You see, uh, they're terms of military deeds, military heroism. But these people aren't good at winning battles for Yahweh. These are people who have become champions at boozing. And it's as though they've got a bunch of medals for it that say, for self-indulgence. Well, the problem with setting your sights on pleasing yourself is that it's going to have a consequence elsewhere. And people who are supposed to be leaders of the community when they're indulging themselves, they get slack on their true priorities, which should have been making sure that justice was properly administered, and it's not. And Yahweh is angry. So there's two more therefores that flow on from these four additional woes. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, it's a picture of a ruined vineyard such as would happen after one of our bushfires. Lots of the Australian wine industry was devastated in our recent bushfire episodes. Well, that's what Yahweh said was coming to Judah. Why? Verse 24, they've rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They've despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Now, in the security of our lounge rooms, we might sit and tut tut. We might say, silly fools, they had it coming to them. How seriously do we love God's word? How serious are we about letting it shape us, really? Now, you'll have to answer for yourself. But the fact is we live in a world whose values are corrupt and in opposition to the truth of God's word. We live in a world where to take God's word seriously is regarded as a very unusual thing to do, possibly even a dangerous, stupid thing to do. So what's shaping your thinking? What's shaping your mind, your heart? What's shaping your ambitions? 
to what extent would it be true of you to say that you love God's word? Because that's the opposite of despising it. And if you do love God's word, how does that reveal itself in your priorities and in your day-to-day life? That's a challenge. We can't go around looking at these people as bad examples and not letting the focus shift to us as well. Do we love God's word? Do we live by it? Well, the second, therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. But even then, his anger's not satisfied. And so we move on. See, so in chapter 5, verse 4, Yahweh's asked the question, what more could I have done? And the answer was nothing. He's done everything that a vineyard keeper would do to get a vineyard to produce good fruit. But when Yahweh's gifts are met by ongoing stubborn refusal, what then? Is he just going to shrug his shoulders, move away, turn a blind eye? No, he'll deal with it. Verse 26, he will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them for the ends of the earth and they'll come quickly. Yahweh is sovereign over all the world. He's sovereign over all the nations and he can bid another nation to come and exercise his anger and judgment on his own chosen people. And we find that there's a relentlessness about these invaders. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap is broken. We're not told yet who the invaders will be. We'll find out later in Isaiah who they are. This is just a foretaste. But trouble's coming because Judah won't return to the God who bought them, the God who rescued them. The arrows of these invaders are sharp, their bows are bent, their horses' hoofs seem like flint. Trouble's coming, and it's trouble in the form of exile. They'll lose the land, and they'll be taken to a place that they don't want to go. And so verses 29 and 30 say, Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar, they growl and seize their prey, they carry it off. You don't resist a lion if he wants to carry you off. No human can stand. And these opposing enemies, when they come, will be irresistible. If one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress. You see, their city is going to be set on fire. It will be destroyed and they'll flee from it as the clouds of smoke linger over it. This is a, it's a, a foretaste of terrible destruction. But it doesn't have to be that way. That's why Isaiah ministered. That's why Isaiah preached. That's why his prophecies were written down. He wants to get these people to turn back, to turn away from their ongoing practice of rebellion and and, and childish silliness towards their saving God, Yahweh. We find a psalm that was written probably around about the same time, Psalm 80. And it's credited to uh, Asaph. And in verses 8 and 9, Asaph pleads with God. He says, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. There's that imagery again. You cleared the land for it. It took deep root and filled the land. But you see, he was describing devastation as well. He moves on in Psalm 80 to verse 17. And he makes this plea, let your hand be on the man of your right hand. In other words, on your king. Yahweh, please return your favour to your king. May he lead us well, judging wisely and, and, and winning victories for us in battle. 
Let your hand be on the man of your right hand. And as the psalm concludes, he goes back to his plea, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. It doesn't have to be the way that Isaiah is speaking. If they return, they will be restored. If they don't, they'll be judged. Well, what about us? What are we to make of these words? We know from the rest of Israel's history, uh, we know from the rest of the book of Isaiah, as we'll see as we continue, that they didn't return, they didn't repent, and they were judged. But what about us? What do we do as we read these things? Well, you see, this prayer of Asaph has been answered. It's the prayer of one who is surrounded by rebellion, who sees many others going away after other gods, and and he's caught up in, in the punishment that came to them. But the prayer of a member of this faithful remnant that's been preserved by God has been answered. And so as we turn to the New Testament, we find Jesus picking up this vineyard language, and look at how he uses it. In John chapter 15, verse 5, he says, I am the vine. Now in Isaiah and throughout the Old Testament, Israel was the vine. Jesus is saying, I'm the true Israel. I'm all that Israel should have been. I am the one who will serve Yahweh faithfully. I am the vine, says Jesus. You are the branches, he says to his disciples then and us, his disciples now. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Remember the wood of a vine is only useful for producing grapes. Uh, it, if it doesn't produce, it'll be burned. Jesus says, abide in me, stay connected, remain in me, stay connected as the, the branches need to stay connected to the stem so that the life of the Spirit can continue to course through us. Jesus is the vine. We're the branches. If we want to be fruit-bearing people of God, it comes as we confess our sin repeatedly. It comes as we remain connected to the Lord Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, the one who lives his life through us by his Holy Spirit. And then we'll discover that we'll bear fruit as we remain connected to him. But if we allow the world to twist our thinking, if we allow the world to shape us, we'll be as fruitless as Judah. And so we began by thinking of threats that went unheeded. Neville Chamberlain took at face value the words of a man who could not be trusted. Letters that go unopened because they contain news that we find unpalatable. We must be very careful that we don't underestimate the seriousness of continuing to live rebelliously against Yahweh. He does have a day when he will deal with all who defy him. We can't afford to put off deciding to, to live his way, to accept his forgiveness and his salvation. If we want to live in the prospect of his promise, we need to make up our mind for him now, not defer it. If we want to inherit the promise of the new heaven and the new earth, the, the, the new creation, we need to come to the Lord Jesus, the true vine. We need to come to him and, and say, we need your life lived in us your life given for us, your sal salvation that comes to us as we accept that you, the true vine, the true Israel, laid down your life for sinners like us. We need to quit from our rebellious ways and find our hope and our peace and our life 
through the Lord Jesus, the man of God's right hand, the true king and the true saviour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for trusting us with these words. They're stern words. They're, they're strong words. Help us not to pretend that they're anything other than those. Help us to find in these a reflection of your hatred of sin. And yet we know because you've revealed it to us through the Lord Jesus that you are God of love and mercy and peace, a God who longs to restore. So, Father, please forgive us for our sins. Please forgive us for those times when we willfully disobey you. Please forgive us for those signs, those times when we just use worldly wisdom and make our own way and don't really take heed of your, your good word to us. Please help us to, to, to desire to remain connected to the true vine, the Lord Jesus, and may his life course through us, causing us to want to live in obedience to all of your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen.